Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Continue along in our series in the cross of Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, you could turn to Romans chapter 5 this morning. So we are exploring the cross of Jesus, and we're doing so uh, because the scriptures not only tell us that Jesus died on the cross, but the scriptures actually tell us and want us to know why Jesus died on the cross. And we're spending all spring and we're spending all summer on this question. And this morning we're going to look at this amazing passage from Romans 5. We're going to start in chapter 5, verse 12. And so I'll read, you can follow along. This is Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to right justification and for life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's just pray before we uh, dig into this text together. Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts here together be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer and Holy Spirit. Work through this time, work through any um, sense of dislocation or, or if, if being in a different environment is throwing us off, Lord, would you work through that? Help us to not just know, but to even experience the glory of your cross, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, so a few years ago, I decided it would be a good idea to cut my own boy's hair. Um, this is before the pandemic, so I don't have an excuse. <laughs> so I went on YouTube, and I watched a bunch of videos, and um, tried my best. And then Josie... Um, very wisely and calmly took our boys to the barbershop for correction. And so uh, that was something that um, that she did, and I was glad, because what the barbers had to do, which is something I'm sure if you ask the barber, like, this is probably something they do every single day, but it's 
called the reverse the damage haircut. And I don't know if you guys have ever even had to do that yourself. But as I reflect on my life story, I think about that because I think about how there are cuts, there are things that I've done, chosen to do, chosen not to do, that I wish I could just kind of go somewhere to have the damage reversed, to have it cleaned up, to have things sort of set right uh, in my own story. And I'm willing to bet and I'm speaking to you as well, that I'm not alone in this, that we have things in our story that if we could go back and reverse, we would do that. If there are things in our story that we could go back and rewrite, we would do that. If there are things in our story that we could erase or revise, we could, we could probably imagine that being a really good thing. I want you to hear these words from Fleming Rutledge. She asks, is there anyone over 50 who would not want to live his or her life over again in order to correct the mistakes, avoid the wrong turns, undo the damage, maximize the opportunities, recover the wasted time, repair the broken relationships, restore the lost future? It's a really uh, easy question to answer, and you don't even have to be over 50, actually, to answer this question, I think. Of course we would. Of course we would do that. Things have gone terribly wrong in our story. Things have gone terribly wrong in our personal stories, but also the story of this world. All we have to do is look at a history book and ask that same question. If we could just go back and rewrite or, re, or re, uh, redo, we would, we would, we would do it in a minute. Well, what we just read and what we just heard from the Apostle Paul is that this is exactly why Jesus came. This longing, this burden that we have, uh, which Paul describes as sort of the mess that we have in Adam. Adam's original mess. Uh, and we too, in Adam, have made a mess of things. So the British author... Francis Spufford calls us the human propensity to mess things up. The human propensity to mess things up. So in Adam, as our representative, we too have a human propensity. It's not a whoopsie. It's a, it's a sort of a propensity, a pull in our life uh, to make those wrong turns and to make those um, things that we wish we could reverse. So Paul is saying... In that, that's precisely why Jesus came. He came to clean up. He came to reverse. And how so? Well, we can talk about a lot of things, but I see three things. He came to do this with his life, his death, and with his grace. I want to talk about all three. So with his life, um, this is Paul's claim in verse 12. He writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And now notice... If, if, you're, if you're looking at a Bible, you'll notice a, a hyphen there. And then verse 13 conclu- uh, starts talking about sin before the law was given and starts talking about death reigning from Adam to Moses, even though there was no law, uh, there still was death. And then he says something in verse 14 about Adam being a type of, of, uh, of Jesus who was to come. And then he says in verse 15 that this free gift is not like the trespass. And he goes on and on. He's basically doing this massive detour, and, then he, and we're going to talk about some of that. But when he finally gets out of the cul-de-sac and back into his main point, which he was saying in verse 12, we're at verse 19. <laughs> so if you can believe it, all that text in between verse 12 and verse 19 is kind of a side comment. And it's an important side comment, or you can think of it as a footnote. And there are very important footnotes, and we'll talk about them. But let's just continue in verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. 
And then a little bit of another footnote about the nature of the law and what that does. And then verse 21 says, So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul is making this giant contrast, if you could notice, like as we were reading, between two men, Paul, I'm sorry, not Paul, uh, Adam and Jesus. And in fact, as we saw in verse 14, uh, he says that Adam was a type of the one to come. Adam was a type of Jesus. And in other places, Paul actually calls Jesus the last Adam, which is kind of an evocative thing to say. The last Adam, the one who comes last to clean up our mess. We see this clearly in verse 19. So if you look, there's an exchange that happens. Adam gives us his sin. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. It's an inherited problem. It's like a gift. It's a terrible gift. You ever gotten a terrible gift before? Like, this is a terrible gift that we got. It's awful. But then we see an actually amazing gift that comes in verse 19 as well. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so, if the first Adam gives us sin and a sin nature, the last Adam gives us his righteousness. So, May 4th was um, what day? Does anybody know? Star Wars Day? Yep. Star Wars Day, yeah? Yep. Uh, The reason I know this is because Jedi benedictions were going on across our neighborhood and even at our school, May the 4th be with you. Um, I got emails uh, from Disney Plus saying, you know, watch all the Star Wars. And I was amazed that there's like 72 Star Wars now to watch. Uh, because uh, Star Wars, when I was growing up, was really only three movies. And uh, theologian Michael Bird, he actually compares verse 19 to the original trilogy. Um, he reminds us that Star Wars is really a story of two Skywalkers. Again, the original three. And, and this, these two Skywalkers, you have Anakin and you have Luke and, and Bird reminds us that George Lucas wrote the original Star Wars trilogy to remind us uh, that, uh, or to show us a redemption story, namely the redemption of Anakin Skywalker. And so Anakin lives in this world, and he abuses the Jedi code and causes death and destruction. However, you have a second or a last, a last Jedi who comes as Luke, and Luke reverses the damage that was done by not abusing the Jedi code, but by living it perfectly. And so what we have here is we have, okay, all analogies break down, I know that. (laughs) But this, I think, is a helpful way to think about the mission of Jesus and what Paul's trying to tell us about the mission of Jesus. That Jesus didn't come just to die for you, that is true. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he also came to live for you. He came to live for you, uh, to redeem you. As truly God, he becomes truly human, Jesus, so that he can live the life that we were called to live. In all the ways, I mean, if you have the courage to, to even think back to every misstep, to every mistake, to every regret you have, every sort of violation of love in your life, both to God and to others, if you have the courage to call to mind some of those things, now fathom the thought Paul is saying here, that Jesus came to redo and undo every single one of those things in his life. In the life that he lived as the last time. That his perfect life of righteousness, his perfect life of love towards God and towards others is actually a life that he lived for you. That it could be credited to you. So that your true identity would be hidden in Jesus. So that as you think about your life, it's actually shocking and in, 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 in many ways it feels too good to be true. But it's that his life of perfect righteousness and obedience would be your life. That you would be enveloped into that. His life 
to clean up your mess. That's number one. Number two, his death to clean up our mess. So before we talk about Jesus' death, which even though it's not mentioned by name, is actually in this text, um, we need to talk about death in general. And we need to talk about our death. And here's why. Because Paul does. I don't know if you noticed when we were going through this text, but death comes up a lot, a lot, a lot. The word death, actually, if you were to just scan, you will see that this is a lot about death. Death comes up a lot. And this is true about the Apostle Paul. He talks about death quite a bit, so much so that theologians call him a mortician. Paul the mortician. Because he's constantly thinking about mortality and death. And he's almost captured by the problem of death. And Paul tells us, I think, three valuable things about death in this small passage. First, the origin of death. He tells us about the origin of death. For Paul, death is an intruder. It's not a feature of a good creation. That's just fundamental. It's an intruder. It was ushered into this world, as we see, by the sin of Adam. Verse 12. Death through sin. Which is basically a recap of Genesis 3. If you were to look at Genesis 3, you would see death through sin. Those three words. You would see that playing out. Death through sin is like a three-word summary of Genesis 3. Death through sin. And that's spiritual death, that's eternal death, that's physical death. Death. Death is an intruder. And here's an important takeaway. If this is all you get from this sermon, this is great. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. And oftentimes... And usually at funerals, we hear pastors, well-meaning pastors, try to lessen the sting of the death that they are all confronting at that moment and try to sort of lessen even the trauma of death that everybody's encountering at that moment by insinuating that death is a sort of positive feature of the world. Um, That it's somehow just the way it is and that we just need to sort of come to peace, come to terms with the way it is. But no, we see here that is not true. As Neil Plantinga points out, death is vandalism. Death is vandalism. It's a vandalism of shalom, which is the Hebrew concept of full flourishing, of life with God, life with ourselves, life with others. This relational wholeness is vandalized by the reality of death, which comes through sin. That's number one, the origin of death. Uh, The second thing we learn that's valuable about death here is the tyranny of death. This really probably doesn't need any convincing. I'm sure you guys all are aware. If you live long enough, you understand the tyranny of death. But in verse 14, Paul tells us that death reigned from Adam to Moses. So without the law of Moses, like the Ten Commandments and everything that flows out of that, like even without that, Paul's point here in these in these middle verses is that there still was death. Dying was happening, which tells you that sin was happening. Because if death comes through sin, then even without the law, people were sinning, and that means that there was death. And so that was sort of a, a side point that was very important for Paul to establish because uh, he didn't want to insinuate that without the law, there was no sin. Uh, the law points out sin. It gives a name to sin. It sort of, in some ways, even like draws sin out because we realize like what we can disobey now. <laughs> but, uh, but, but Paul's point is that death was reigning from the garden on. So in verse 21, Paul says that sin reigned in death. And again, I'll mention Mike Bird. He says, the picture that Paul paints is like sin is a villain. So think of Star Wars again. Uh, Sin is like a villain in this passage with death as his weapon and people as his victim. It's like a a villain. I would maybe even describe sin because Paul is personifying sin here as a kind of tyrant with death as his weapon, as his tool of torture. And people as his victim. 
And that's the kingdom we live in by nature. But the third thing we learn about death that's valuable is actually the death of death. And the, um, see, this is grim stuff in a way. Paul was a mortician. You can call him a, a grim vocation. But the reason he explores death and talks about death incessantly is because he has discovered in Jesus the only way out. The only way out. The only way out. Luke Ferry is a French philosopher, and he wrote a big long book about the history of philosophy. And I read this book, and he has this remarkable claim at the end of the book. He says, basically, all of human philosophy is trying to solve the death problem. All of it. And the only answer is a resurrection. He says, I don't believe in the resurrection, Luke Ferry. He's like, but I want to, because it's the only answer. And that's where he is, this French philosopher. And Paul would say, amen, I agree, except I saw the risen Jesus. You can't believe it. It is the only answer. See, Paul's like, death is a tyrant, and there is no way out of this terrible kingdom. Uh, and, but, but there is. It's just not in ourself. Um, so Paul may not mention the cross by name, but it's referred to in verse 18. So if you take a look or just listen, uh, the death on a cross is Jesus' one act of righteousness in verse 18. His one act of righteousness. And Paul says that by this one act, we have two things, justification and life. Justification and life. So let's talk about those two words briefly. We're going to spend the whole summer on, on these two words, so I'm not going to go too in-depth. But justification, what does this sort of five-syllable mouthful mean? Justification. Um, well, it answers our sin problem. And that's a big problem in here. Because death came through sin. Death came through sin. And so, how do we get rid of the source problem? Well, the answer is justification. God is just. His covenant that He makes... Uh, has sanctions for unfaithfulness. So we are getting familiar with the word sanctions in the news. We know what that is. It's a penalty for for disobeying a contract. There's a sanction that happens. And we see that there are sanctions for the covenant that God enters into. And uh, that sanction is a curse. Sanction is, is called a curse. The curse of exile, and as some have put it, even the exile, spiritual exile, which is death. But Paul says... In another letter, Christ redeemed us or rescued us from the curse of the law or the sanction by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus on the cross takes the covenant sanctions upon himself so that they no longer can land on you. And so that they no longer even apply to you. And that is justification because what that means is that Jesus was cursed in our place. The judge became judged in our place. And that means that There is no judgment, there is no condemnation for those who are in Him. If He is your representative, then there's no way you can be condemned because He took the covenant sanction instead of you. Number one. Number two, though, justification means not just that your slate was wiped clean, but that you actually get the righteousness or the life of Jesus that we just talked about. Uh, We get His righteousness. We get absorbed into His whole life. So His death is ours, yes, but also His life, which means... The verdict of you are righteous, you are right with me is given to us now. We don't have to wait until that final day. Justification means that the verdict is in today. You are right with me, God says. And it's because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you have done. That is unbelievable news. And that means that we have the answer to spiritual death and physical death. It's through the death of Jesus. There was a death blow against death. See, that's why Paul says not only do we get justification from that one act of righteousness, but we get life from that one act of righteousness.
consciousness. I wonder if you've uh, seen Igmar Bergman's famous film, The Seventh Seal. No apologies if you haven't. It's black and white, Swedish, okay? It's fine. Um, I watch weird movies. Um, I hardly watch movies, but Josie can attest. The ones I do watch are very strange. Um, This movie by Igmar Bergman is a famous movie, and it's an exploration about death. And there's this sort of... It's set in sort of medieval Sweden uh, during the bubonic plague. I told you it was weird. But uh, uh, there is this famous scene. You probably can call it to mind, even if you haven't seen the movie, where there's a chess match between um, sort of a common man and... Um, a very pale, scary-looking guy who is death personified, kind of like the Grim Reaper, we would say. And they're playing a chess match. And you get the sense as you're watching that you know who's going to win. Despite all the mental energy, despite all the effort, despite all the movement that's going on by this common man, you know who's going to win. There's a checkmate at the end. And it turns out, as I researched this, that this scene was inspired by a 15th century painting by a man named Albertus Pictor, which is a great last name if you're a painter, Pictor. Uh, And it hangs in a Swedish church, actually, and it shows death playing chess with a person trying to outwit sin and death on the board. But in the end, again, we're checkmated by death. And this is actually Paul's goal. Paul's goal in this passage is to help us feel that sense of almost despair against the tyrant, sin and death. Um, because he would actually have us go to the place that Luke Ferry goes in his book about the history of philosophy. Luke, Paul would want us to go to that place to say, there is really no checkmate. And that is a scary place to admit. That's a scary thing to admit. But Paul wants us to admit it. Why? So that we would fly to Jesus. That's why. Only the death and resurrection of Jesus breaks the checkmate of death. Spiritual death and physical death. That's it. Which takes us to our last point this morning, which is his grace. So you might ask, okay, that's great. His life cleaned up my mess. He came as the last Adam. His death cleaned up my mess as the last Adam. Um, How do I gain access to that? How do I, you said fly to Jesus, Joe. How do I do that? Like, what does that look like? And do I have to clean up my act first? And the answer that Paul would give emphatically is no. You come to him exactly as you are. In fact, owning your need is how you come. And the word here is grace. We don't earn this. We don't pay for this. We receive this. So verse 15 compares the rescue of Jesus, this sort of divine cleanup act, as a free gift, which is not like the trespass. So if the trespass, if Adam gave us this terrible gift, Think of the worst gift you've ever given. This is a fun exercise. The worst gift you've ever given, or maybe gave to someone else. Okay? And then think of the best gift you were ever given. This time, this sort of now, like, like multiplied by millions in opposite directions is what Paul's saying. He's like, we got a terrible gift, a trash gift by Adam. But the last Adam came and gave us something unbelievable, a free gift, which is better than the trespass. For if many died through this one man's trespass, much more will have the grace of God. This is what Paul says. And the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded by many. So Jesus doesn't just clean up our mess. What Paul is describing here is that Jesus actually abounds. What he does abounds. It's sort of, he doesn't just correct, but he sort of almost overcorrects the problem. He doesn't just clean up or, or sort of turn, like if he is coming behind us and cleaning up the mess we're making, he doesn't just sort of bring things back to where they were. He actually improves them on his life somehow. 
He calls us in verse 17, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. In verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more that grace would reign. And did you notice that Paul says free gift? This is something that comes here pulled my attention to, which is an odd phrase, actually. Because gifts are by nature free. So why does Paul have to say free gift? Free gift. Well, it's because in that culture, apparently gifts were loaded. They were actually, um, they weren't gifts. They weren't real gifts. They were um, they were very calculated gifts, as one person put it. They were calculated because they had sort of an ulterior motive always. Maybe you would give a gift to someone who um, you wanted to impress or be invited to something. Like you wanted to climb a social rank, so you gave a gift to a, a strategic gift to a certain person uh, that you know would obligate them to now invite, invite you into something else. And so all gift giving in those days was some kind of like uh, strings attached um, kind of dynamic thing that was probably very hard to to live in and very frustrating to live in. And so what Paul has to say here is that the gift that is being described here is free. It's not, there are no strings attached. It's it's a free gift. I don't know if you've given a gift with strings attached, like whenever I buy board games for a family. It has a lot of strings attached because the the emphasis is like, or the the implication of that is, um, like, I want you to play this game with me, which is like a three-hour time commitment not everybody wants to do. And so it's like, yeah, this is free, but everybody who's receiving is kind of like, it's not free. You know, it's definitely not free. Uh, there is a cost to this. Um, and you can think of other examples, I'm sure. That's not the gift of Jesus. The gift of Jesus is free. That's what Paul says. I'm not making it up. Paul says it. the apostle. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. We simply lay hold of it with empty hands of faith. And when you do, uh, you're transferred. You change places. You change from Adam's reign to Christ's reign, the reign of grace. Adam no longer defines you when you do this. Sin doesn't tyrannize you anymore when you do this. Death with his weapon no longer can hurt you with, uh, when you do this. Now Jesus defines you with his what? His reign of grace, verse 21. So the way you get into this reign of grace is by simply laying hold of it with empty hands. You don't try to prove yourself when you go into it. You don't try to show yourself worthy when you go into it. Um, You, like the prodigal son, simply run, and you will see that he's outpacing you, Jesus. Which means an important question as we close this morning. The most important question in your life is, where are you? Where are you? Not who are you, not what are you doing not what kind of person are you. It's where are you. It's a location question. Because there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those in Adam and there are those in Christ. And that's a location. That's a location issue. So the question, the most important question is where are you? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? If you, if you, if you feel like you're not in Christ, Paul would just simply say it's a free gift. And what do you do with a free gift? You, you lay hold of it with empty hands. You lay hold of it. You lay hold of it and you claim it. And when you do, it means two mag- means a lot of magnificent things, but two that I want to talk about this morning. Number one, you can stop digging up the dead man. Now, this is something my counselor tells me. Um, Joe, you're digging up the dead man. What, what she means by that is uh, whenever I sort of find myself caught or trapped in unhealthy patterns, uh, she's pointing out that, that does, that's like the, the old reign. That's the reign of death and sin. And that has been crucified. And that, that, that is the old Joe that was crucified with Christ. And so um, when I sort of live that way or sort of um, say, well, I don't know, like she's like, you're digging up a dead man. You're actually like going into a grave. It helps me. It's Im- imagistic. And I'm actually like 
digging up dirt and saying, you know, this is the way I have to be. And what, she, what her advice to me is, that person is dead. And you are now alive in Christ, in his reign. So that's the first thing. You can stop digging up the dead man. And number two, you can have assurance in your fixed status. And so think about this. If the most important question in your life is not who are you or what kind of person are you, but where are you, that means that fundamentally what is most important to us is our status with God. And if in Christ we are fully loved and fully known, in Christ we have Adam. His life is death on our behalf, his resurrection on our behalf. If we are located in Christ, if that location question is answered, then we have a fixed status, which means we can have assurance. We no longer have to sort of wax and wane. We, we know that, that we cannot be more loved and we cannot be loved any less because we are fixed. We are in a fixed place with Jesus. So the way that God feels about his son is exactly how he feels about you. Did you know that? Do you believe that? It's true. It's true. We didn't make it up. This is the proclamation of the Apostle Paul. This is what Jesus came to do. It's to bring us into relationship with him. And we have that through his life, death, his resurrection. All of who Jesus is, we are in him. And that is our good news this morning. See, okay, I talked about a redo with haircuts. Like, if we were all granted a redo in our life, like, like we all want, what's the tragic truth? We screw up in all the same ways, or at least magnificently different ways. That's probably the truth. And then we feel worse because we got a do-over. And <laughs> we messed that up. So we messed up the do-over and we messed up our life in different ways. Um, in the end, again, the death and sin says checkmate if we were to have a redo. Which is why the gospel is not that God gives us a redo. I see, I see bumper stickers sometimes that says, you know, God gives redos or God allows you to... to, to uh, tr- change your life and all that. And, and those are all very true statements, but I, I, I fear it doesn't say enough. Because the gospel says that it's not up to us to redo, but that God himself in Christ does it. And he does it perfectly on our behalf. All that is broken, all that is vandalized in your life and in this, uh, in this world we live in, uh, Jesus came to undo and to set right. So, since we've been talking about art, um, which I include Star Wars in that, um, We've been talking about art a lot. Um, in ancient art, in ancient medieval art, often, even pre-medieval art, the cross of Jesus, when you see it depicted, is often depicted as on top of a skull. Have you ever seen this before? Have you ever noticed before? When you look at a crucifix, um, there's a skull underneath it. And um, it's a really interesting feature of a lot of old art. Uh, and the skull is not there, if you read about this, um, just because Jesus was crucified on Calvary, which Calvary, if you didn't know, means place of the skull. It's the Latin version of Golgotha, which means place of the skull. This is, a, um, this is where Jesus was crucified, the, place, the skull place. And so you would think the skull is underneath the cross because he was crucified on the skull place. And they're just giving you sort of a, a little bit of a visual sort of um, a version of that, Golgotha. No, more likely it's that these artists read or heard Romans 5. The skull is the skull of Adam and all who are in Adam. But the blood of Jesus flows in these paintings to the skull of Adam and to us. Now, I'm not saying that Adam was literally buried there. That sort of became a story that the church told in centuries before us. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is Romans 5. 
Death has a checkmate over us unless we're under the cross. And it's under the cross that we realize that Jesus lived for us, he died for us, he rose for us, and we can have rest. So let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would drill us into our hearts this morning that it's really about where we are. Where we are. Are we in Christ or not? And I pray, Lord, that all of us here would find the freedom of being in Christ. That we would lay hold of you now with empty hands of faith. That we would be transferred out of the kingdom of sin and death, a tyranny even, into your kingdom of grace, where you reign and rule. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.